0: Before we come to read our Bible passage this morning, I'd just like to ask for your prayers for the work of the Christian Resources Project, which I'm involved in. Uh, September through to Christmas is always our busiest term as we work with the schools across the city. And in particular, I'd ask you to pray about two things. For about the sixth year, I think now, we are putting packs of Christian books into primary schools in Plymouth and the surrounding area. We've got a pack of 25 books uh, This year a mix of um, Bible stories reference books uh, and other stuff with a Christian theme we know from past years that these are really well received teachers are enthusiastic kids are enthusiastic the books actually get read Um, so please pray for the sponsorship to come in it costs 25 pound a pack to put a book in a pack in a school Uh, and pray for um, all the practicalities of getting them into the school and for the children Uh, and teachers as they read them and then also we've got a new member of staff coming to join us she's starting on Tuesday Gemma Ponsford is has been working at Hope Baptist Church she's been on the swim course she's just finished her degree in theology and youth work and she's now moving to Christian Resources Project so just down the road Uh, she's going to be our secondary schools worker part of our job will be to manage and mentor the swim swim team, that's youth work trainees in churches across the city, and also to work with young people, particularly to help them to be witnesses in school, those that want to run a Christian union or find other ways of being a witness in secondary school. Um, That's a big task, but uh, Gemma's a very gifted young woman, and uh, Is already working well with young people through the church and through the net, which is the big youth celebration in Plymouth. So we're looking forward to what God is going to do through Gemma as she joins us. If you'd like to know a bit more about all that and you'd like to pray for us, ask me afterwards, I'll give you a copy of one of our prayer letters. We're going to read now from Scripture, John's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, page 1065 in the Pew Bible, also up on the screen, if you prefer that. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, We know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born again when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, you are Israel's teacher said Jesus and do you not understand these things I tell you the truth we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen but still you people do not accept our testimony I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe how then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven the son of man But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Well, over these summer weeks we're following a series called Verses That Changed the World. And today we come to what's arguably the best known verse in the whole Bible. John three, sixteen. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. We've read the whole passage to set the context with Nicodemus visit and there's a whole lot of stuff in there but I'm not going to focus on the context I want to focus specifically on the verse itself just that one verse John 3:16 and I want to ask three questions as we try and unpack it the questions are who did what and so what okay that's the three questions we're going to use to try and unpack this very familiar verse who did what and so what? So, who is this verse about? Well, it's about the God who loves the world. Now, you and I have heard that so many times, we take it for granted. The idea of a God of love is no novelty. But actually, it's really not so obvious. Then the centuries... Human beings have invented all sorts of gods. But as far as I know, nobody ever invented a god of love. Oh, there were gods that were called gods of love. Gods like Venus and Aphrodite and Eros and that. But they were gods of sex and fertility and all that kind of stuff. But nobody ever invented a god whose nature was love and who loves people. At worst, the gods that we created were angry and vicious. And you had to tread very carefully and keep them placated or else awful things would happen to you. Others were just capricious and silly. Never knew what they were going to do, could do anything. Something totally mad, something harmful, something good, you, you just didn't know. The highest that we got with invented gods was really some of the Greek philosophers who said, no, the gods are not like that. You're just creating gods that are like us, but bigger. No, the gods are wholly other. In fact, so other, so different from us, that we can't relate to them. And they're not interested in relating to us. They're apathetic, they're distant, they couldn't care. There is no connection between humans and God. And that was the best we could come to in inventing gods. Nobody ever had the idea that there should be a God who loves us. But the true God reveals himself. And reveals himself to be a God we could never have imagined. A God who loves us. More than that, no invented gods ever loved the world. All the gods that we invented were very much tribal gods. Or national gods. The whole idea was this was our God and he's on our side and he's against our enemies. The idea of a God that was a universal God, a God that loved the world, was never dreamt of. But the true God revealed himself to be a God who loves the world, the world that he created. Yes, of course, we know that God chose one man, Abraham. And from Abraham, he created one nation, Israel. And Israel was God's chosen people. But it was never totally exclusive. What was the promise that God gave to Abraham? We saw it some while ago as we were working through Genesis. He said that through Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed. God called a man, he created a nation and into that nation Jesus was born so that the whole world, every tribe and nation should be blessed. It's a God who loves the world. And what's amazing is God loves a sinful, rebellious world. It's quite easy to, like, to love nice people, isn't it? Do you find that? There are certain people you can just get on with. They're nice, they're friendly. There are others, they just get right up your nose, don't they? Who wants to love them? Well, just imagine for God, everybody's like that. The whole world is in rebellion against God, the whole world is sinful, and yet God loves a sinful, rebellious world. Don Carson, in his commentary on John's Gospel, says God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big. And includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. Nobody ever dreamt of a God that could love the world. Because when you look at the world, it's not worth loving. But the nature of God is to love. Now, you don't have to talk about God loving the world for very long before somebody will say, oh, come on. How can you talk about God loving the world? Look around you. Look at the suffering and the pain and all the stuff that's going on. Where's the God of love in all that? It's a question often asked by unbelievers of believers. And it's helpful just to reflect it back, first of all, And say to someone who says there is no God, well, what do you think about suffering and evil and all the stuff that goes on in the world? And the answer is this it has no meaning, it has no purpose, and there is no hope of redemption. Suffering, evil, sin, it just happens, it's random. It comes from nowhere we can do nothing about it and there is no hope in it. But The strange thing is, we can't live really believing that. So if we don't believe in God, we somehow have to come up with a way that kids ourselves that there is some sort of meaning and purpose in all these things. Because when you truly, uh, definitely believe that all sorts of bad things happen and there is no reason, there is no purpose and there is no hope you either go mad or you kill yourself. We can't live in that kind of environment. Back in the 6th century BC, Israel was conquered by the Babylonians. And war then, as now, was cruel and terrible. For Israel, it was a time of terror and torture. Rape and abuse and death. And then those that survived were taken away to Babylon to live in exile. Sometime after the war was over, someone, traditionally Jeremiah, reflected on all this and wrote what we know today as the Book of Lamentations. It's heavy going. Didn't pull any punches. He reflects again and again on how awful it was and the terrible things that happened and the despair that was brought. And then, suddenly, absolutely out of nowhere, in the midst of all this catalogue of woes and problems and suffering, he says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. He wasn't denying the awful things that had happened and were happening. But he says right in the middle of it, I suddenly recall that God is in it. And therefore, I have hope if the Babylonians had had perfect freedom if there'd been no God it could have been far worse but even in the awful things that happen God restricts God restrains God holds back and God suffers with those who suffer God is not distant and far off God is there suffering with them And in the midst of suffering, there is the love of the suffering God, bringing hope and purpose and comfort and redemption and the promise that suffering will not last forever. For God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. We should never talk glibly about suffering and about the evil that happens in the world. It's a terrible thing. And there are no slick and easy answers. But where is the God who loves the world in suffering? He's right there in the midst of it, bringing hope. So there's our first question Who is the God who loves the world? All right, second question, did what? And the answer is gave his one and only son. The word that the NIV translates one and only is a word that means unique, special, greatly loved. In other words, God gave the very best thing that he had, as one of the songs says. Now, you'll often hear in sermons, hopefully not here, Or reading books, stories which claim to illustrate God's giving of his son. And they usually follow a fairly similar pattern. There's a dad who is driving a bus or a train or controlling some machinery or on a boat or some such thing. And suddenly he sees that a catastrophe is going to happen and a whole lot of people are going to get killed. And he can save them but if he does, his own child will die. You may have heard stories like it or come across it. I want to say those stories are totally wrong and absolutely unhelpful in understanding what God did with Jesus for a number of reasons. First of all, this was not an unexpected accident. Our salvation, our redemption, our reconciliation with God was planned by Father, Son and Holy Spirit before time began. It was not the situation that God looked down on the world and said, oops, it's all gone pear-shaped. What are we going to do? Don't panic. Don't panic. No, this was planned. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead, before time began, planned your redemption, my redemption. Planned that Jesus would come to the cross. This was no unforeseen accident. And then, in the stories, it's always a child. Jesus was not a child. When he died. Yes, he was born as a baby and grew up as a child and a teenager and an adult. But Jesus went to the cross as a man who chose willingly to follow the purpose of God. As he prayed in the garden, yet not my will, but yours. Be done. And then also... Another kind of idea that we get about this whole subject is that God is somehow remote and angry. And you've got these two characters. There's the father who's not very nice and always insisting on the rules and, and, and all that kind of thing. And then you've got the son who graciously takes the punishment to sort out the nasty father. No. God is not remote. God is not distant. Paul tells us in Corinthians. God has done it all. He sent Christ to make peace between himself and us. What we mean is God was in Christ, offering peace and forgiveness to the people of this world. Yes, when we try and explain what's happening, we have to take into account the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the justice of God. And those things have to be satisfied. And they are satisfied through the Son of God, bearing our sin, dying in our place, taking our punishment. But it's not a nasty and a nice. It's not a remote God and a God that's involved. This is Father, Son and Holy Spirit all working to bring about our salvation, our forgiveness together father son and holy spirit created and executed a plan by which the holiness and the justice of god could be satisfied through jesus death on the cross and his resurrection and it was all done for love because love is the nature of god so that's who the god who loved the world did what sent his one and only son so what well, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And again, you've got somebody asking awkward questions. Maybe I meet more people than you do who ask awkward questions. Maybe you never get asked them, but I suspect you do. And the awkward question this time is, okay, if God loves us, why should anybody perish? And the answer is, because God loves us. And if that sounds strange, just think about the nature of love. Love is something that has to be freely given and freely received. Now, if I had enough power over you, I could make you do things. I could make you serve me. I could make you give me things. I could even make you say, I love you. But no matter how much power I had, I could not make you love me. Because anything that was made or forced simply wouldn't be love. And yes, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. But God cannot do the logically impossible. God cannot do those things which contradict themselves. God cannot make us love him because it wouldn't be love what do you do if you want somebody to love you Well, you woo them to use an old-fashioned word don't you you try to win them you do everything you can to say i love you and i want you to love me in return and that's what god does he says i love you i've given my son to die for you i blessed you in a thousand ways. I want you to love me. But he can't make us. Oh yes, he could press a little switch in our brain so that we thought we loved him. And we'd never know. But God would know that it wasn't love. Why will some perish? Because God loves us so much that in the end he will allow us to make our own choice not to love him. Everybody in heaven will be there by the grace of God. Nobody in heaven will deserve a place there. Nobody in heaven will have earned a place there. It will all be by the grace and the love of God. Everybody in hell will be there by their own free choice. Those who do not believe stand condemned already because they've chosen not to believe. That's not the will of God. That's not the love of God. What does the Bible tell us about God's will? 2 Peter says, God is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 1 Timothy says, God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants you and I To respond to his love. To believe, to trust, to commit ourselves to him and have eternal life. But it's love. And so you have the freedom to refuse and face eternity without him. If you want to explore that whole idea, get hold of a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. It's a kind of fantasy where... Uh, the idea is that people from the outskirts of hell go on a day trip to the outskirts of heaven. And it's really uh, a way of exploring conversations. And I think everybody, bar one character, ultimately goes back to hell. They would rather have hell on their own terms than heaven on God's terms. That's the nature of it. You could almost say the gates of hell are kept permanently open because nobody wants to leave because they will not have God. What about you? I guess most people here this morning are Christians. You've believed, you've trusted in the Lord Jesus and you know him to be your savior. But maybe some of you haven't taken that step. You can make that choice right here and now it's not complicated, it's not difficult you just say Lord I want to believe I want to trust you I want to live my life for you and if you mean it God takes you at your word it's as simple as that when I was about 19 18 or 19 I just prayed Lord if you're real take over my life I've been going to Sunday school since I was 3 I knew the Bible pretty well. I knew all that stuff, but it would just never been personal. And I prayed that prayer. Actually, I prayed it one night and nothing seemed to happen, so I prayed it the next night. Then I prayed it the next night. I prayed it every night for about six months. And then somebody challenged me and said, are you a Christian? And I said, yes, I am. And as I said it, I knew it was true. I knew that right at that very first prayer, God had answered it. So I said, pray that prayer. Lord, if you're real, take over my life. That'll do. Put it in whatever words you want. But then I'd say, talk to somebody. Dawn said at the end of her talk, come and talk to me afterwards. I'll be around. There are others around in the church. Because it just helps to fix it and to understand what has happened. But finally, I want to urge those of you that are Christians that know and love the Lord Jesus and are trying to serve him, I want to urge you to pray for people to be saved. That sounds terribly old-fashioned, doesn't it? See, we pray for people for all sorts of things. We pray for their financial needs. We pray for their relationships. We pray for their jobs. We pray for their family. We pray for their health. We pray for all sorts. And I think sometimes we forget to pray that they will be saved now if you're very quick and good theologically you might jump up with an awkward question there and say hang on you've got a paradox here you've just said people have to respond to God and now you're asking God to save them that doesn't fit together no it doesn't There are heaps of paradoxes in theology. That doesn't bother me in the least because there are heaps of paradoxes in the world. And if you're scientifically minded, there are heaps of paradoxes in science as well. It always happens when you're trying to explore a subject that is too big for the mind to grasp. You get a truth here and a truth there and they don't seem to fit together, but you know they're both true. And yes, we have a freedom to choose to love God or not. But also we're encouraged to pray that God will break into people's lives and save them. Pray for people to be saved. Don't stop praying for all their other needs. But pray. Maybe you've got children or grandchildren or parents, brother or sister, friends, neighbors. Pray that God will save them. And like the widow in that parable that Jesus told about the widow and the judge, keep on praying until you see them come to faith. Now, I want to give just one example of that. And I'm a bit tentative about this because I want you to just listen to it and test it out for yourself. I've been involved for a number of years with the family's work here at Muttley. And without boasting, we'd have to say that our family's work is probably some of the best that you'll find in Plymouth. Large numbers are Great atmosphere. You talk to people, they're really appreciative of what we're doing, and they come back, they invite their friends. It's fantastic. A few families have come to faith in Jesus, but not many. And I've been struggling with this. In Buzzy Bees and Buzz Club, it's about relationships and living the gospel. In Messy Church, it's about sharing the gospel very directly and clearly. And God is blessing the work in so many ways. Why are we not seeing large numbers of families come to faith? And as I've struggled with this, and this is the bit I want you to test, I think God has given me an answer. And the answer is because we are not asking for families to be saved. Oh yes, I'm sure those of us that are working in the families work, we are doing that. But as a church, is it our passion is it our heart's desire that God will save these families that he's sending amongst us? Because that's what it needs to be. And I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you to commit to praying for the families that come along to this church week by week. I said this in the nine o'clock service and somebody spoke to me afterwards and said, the group that they belong to is going to be praying every week for families. Will you do that in your private prayer time, in your house group, in any other group you're in, in any other situation? Yes, pray that God will bless them. Pray for all sorts of practical needs. But pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, will break through into the lives of families that he's given us. That they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and find eternal life by believing in him. I believe that if one or two did, there would be a domino effect. And um, I'm not one who's, who's constantly saying revival is around the corner. But I think we could see a mini revival here at Muttley as God breaks through into this ministry which He's called into being, which people have served him faithfully, and which He's blessing. Will you pray for families to come to faith? I think it would be good to end by just doing that very thing. And so I'm not going to clever finish to the sermon except to say, let's just take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we want to pray for the families that come to this church, that come to Buzzy Bees and to Buzz Club and to Messy Church and that every other connection that we've got. Father, we thank you that you've sent them along. We thank you for the good relationships you've built up and the good things that are happening. But especially, Father, we want to pray for families, not just one or two, we want to pray for lots of families to find personal faith in the Lord Jesus, for dad and mum and children come to faith in you Father will you make that our passion will you make that our heart's desire that we pray and pray until we see it happen and then just take a moment of quietness and just in your own heart pray in the silence for someone you know that needs to know Jesus just bring them before God and ask for their salvation Lord, thank you for your love. May those we know and love and live and work amongst find that love for themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.